0: about a month, I will turn 43. And let me tell you, I feel old. <laughs> I figured I would lay that out to see what kind of reaction I get. But statistically speaking, for US males, half of my life is over. In fact, just half over. <laughs> and yes, I am healthy right now. And there is much that I am grateful for, but I still feel old. And well, Here's why. I feel old because I see how different the world is now compared to when I was younger. And before you say to me, oh yeah, we, you know, people say that all the time, that's normal. You're just not aware back then of what the world was really like. Now, I know that's what some of you are gonna say, and I want to say to you right now, no. <laughs> no, I don't think that is quite accurate at all. So, a few years ago, I was made aware of Ed Wilson. He's an American sociologist who has the perfect language to describe what I'm feeling along with so many others in our world right now. He says this. He says, The real problem with humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Have you heard that phrase before? I, mean, I think it is brilliant. Simply put, the issue is this. Technology has outmatched our brains, which has limited our capacity to address the world's most pressing challenges that are before us. So, this is too important not to explain in more detail. Our instincts, our emotions, our brains, they've evolved and been gifted to us by our Paleolithic ancestors. However, these instincts, emotions, and brains that served us so well in the past, that enabled us to survive as a species, they're not built for what is essentially God-like technology, an omniscient awareness of the world's suffering before us 24-7 our news feeds present us with the world's pain and cruelty from every corner of the globe every natural disaster in india every mass shooting in the united states every war crime in ukraine every human rights abuse in china every dried up riverbed from a changing climate and every crooked politician caught in a scandal it's right before us if you are a teenager It's every party you were not invited to, every vacation your family did not take, every piece of clothing you don't own, and a body you don't have. And it's all laid out right in front of you, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. (laughs) And technology that provides us with this near complete knowledge and awareness without agency or control It just feels icky, it's exhausting. We're left just with all of this sitting on top of us and it leads to a kind of learned helplessness. What are you gonna do about all of these major problems? Our traditional organizations and institutions can't help because many of them originated in the medieval world and are not adapted or not adaptable to what we are dealing with right now. It's hard. Do you want another example? Hmm. Ed Wilson also talks about how our Paleolithic brains aren't wired for truth-seeking. We like information that confirms our beliefs because it makes us feel good. We have technology that gives us more of what feels good with every click. But this creates different ideological universes. It fractures society, it creates divisiveness, because the more charged and extreme the content is, the more engaging it is, and the more it's shared. This is why you can't talk to Uncle Frank at Thanksgiving. It's why nobody wants to talk to Uncle Frank. I mean, none of this leads to a good place. It creates a crisis with no way out. And this, this is why I feel old. And no, this world did not exist back when I was a kid, because while we did have paleolithic brains and medieval institutions, we did not have godlike technology. That has changed everything. So I think Ed Wilson is right. This is where a lot of our general unease and anxiety comes from. I told all of this to Emily the other night when we were out for a walk because, yeah, that's, that's what I talk about. <laughs> Just typical everyday stuff like that. And she looks at me like I was an idiot. She said, why are you thinking about this? Just stop. And I'm like, how can you not think about this? And then she says, well, fine. What are you gonna do about it then? What are you going to do to move forward? That's right. That's the question, isn't it? What am I going to do to move forward? What are any of us going to do when it seems like the world we are in now is nothing like it was before? And I'm okay with change, but, but when it feels so heavy as it does now, I mean, what do we do with that? You can't go back, I suppose you can stick your head in the sand and ignore everything for a little while, but but then how are we going to move forward when there is so much anxiety and divisiveness in our lives? Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, true, the men came, came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. She had, however, brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before they went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that dread of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the outer side of the city wall, and she resided within the wall itself. She said to them, go toward the hill country so that the pursuers may not come upon you. Hide yourself there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go on your way. The men said to her, we will be released from this oath that you have made us swear to you. If we invade the land and you do not tie this crimson cord in the window through which you let us down and you do not gather into your house, your father and mother, your brothers and all your family. If any of you go out of the doors of your house into the street, they shall be be responsible for their own death and we shall be innocent. But if a hand is laid upon any who are with you in the house, we shall bear responsibility for their death. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be released from the oath that you made us swear to you. She said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away and they departed. Then she tied the crimson cord in the window They departed and went into the hill country and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers had searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men came down again from the hill country. They crossed over, came to Joshua son of Nun and told them all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before us. The book of Joshua, where our focus text comes from, is addressing an important question. Is God trustworthy? When God makes a promise, is there any hope that that promise will come about? So God made a promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would be numerous, that they would have a permanent home, and that they would be a blessing to to the world around them. But here these people are, having been slaves in Egypt and then wandering through the desert as nomads for decades. Is God going to keep God's promise? Is God faithful? Eventually Israel arrives at this promised land, but they are unsure of what's there. So they send in spies to assess the situation. This is where our focus text comes in. These spies are discovered and hide out with a woman named Rahab. There is little detail given to any of these characters. In this way, they are typical stock characters. What we are told is that Rahab is a prostitute, which does allow us to make some assumptions, but not the ones that you might think. In the ancient world, a woman living with her family in the city who engages in prostitution does not do so because she is morally flawed, but because she's poor and had no support. For her, she needs to do what is necessary to survive. She's a woman with little control and few options, and then these people come to her looking for help. I mean, I think it would be completely understandable for her to turn them in. I think that's what everyone would expect, but she doesn't. Instead, she helps them escape. In a story told for a Jewish audience, it is not lost on anyone that it is an act of hospitality by a non-Israelite female prostitute that sets in motion the fulfillment of God's promise to the people of Israel. God's promise comes to pass through the hospitality of the most unlikely and offensive person imaginable. And this is exactly the point. The theme of hospitality given by the wrong people like foreigners with questionable reputations who are then lifted up as examples of faith. Examples of how God's kingdom comes to pass and reshape our world. This is repeated throughout the biblical narrative. It comes and goes over and over and over again. And my takeaway from all of those stories including the story of Rahab is that when the world seems to be falling down around you, or even if it's not, but the way forward is anything but clear, the act of hospitality, the act of caring, the actions of unremarkable people that benefit another's well-being, they are incredibly powerful and used by God for reshaping and remaking our world. That's my takeaway. Don't underestimate the power of hospitality in your life. So, to go back and answer the really good question that Emily asked me on our walk about What am I going to do in a world that is so different from my childhood? A world that is being divided and negatively impacted by the interplay between our paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology? A world that is causing me and many others to feel older than we actually are? Overwhelmed and stuck? A world where I can't talk to Uncle Frank at Thanksgiving anymore? I mean, what am I going to do about any of this? I mean, What are you going to do? How do you move forward when the path forward is anything but clear? I mean, if the stories of our faith are going to serve as a guide to help us, then I think the answer is to learn how to offer a biblical model of hospitality to the people in our life. (laughs) I mean, there are those that you want to care for because you love them. There are those that you have to care for or else social services will step in. But then there are those people who you don't owe anything to. And quite frankly, people who you don't really care to be close to. They don't have the same values as you. They, they don't respect you. They may not. They may be strangers. Or to use our focus text example, they might even be spies potentially looking to overthrow everything you know and find familiar. <laughs> But to care for those people to offer hospitality to the stranger to your opposite especially when you don't have to wow well that will change you in significant ways you have to check your baggage at the door you have to be open to seeing them as they are and hearing their stories In this world, I think radical hospitality is what the church is called to be in this time and place because it's not widely practiced in our culture. You don't have to be someone special to do this. You can do this in your everyday, ordinary life, in your work, in your school, at the store, in your commute, on your way to and from the office. You can see people, hear them, and offer support and care. You can offer care and, and support to the person who takes your order at Starbucks. And in doing this, in offering hospitality in the ordinary places of life, the kingdom of God begins to take hold and God begins to change the world. I mean, this is the, the, one of the central themes of the biblical story that centers around hospitality. It is the good news that we hear today. Thanks be to God for that. Amen. After hearing the focus text today and the reflection on that text, here are a couple of questions to help take this story and apply it more deeply to your own life. Question number one, who in your life models hospitality well? What does that look like? Think about that. And question number two, will you commit this week to support, listen to, care for, or reach out to an individual in your school or place of work or anywhere else that you're going that you tend to ignore?